everybody, welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. I'm Tanning Grayson, as always, I'm joined by Ross Merriam. Ross, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Uh, got inspired to do more cooking over this weekend uh, after having a kind of lazy week. Spent a very long afternoon making a large tray of moussaka, which I'm currently working my way through. Baked some muffins this morning. Had some homemade lemon curd to put on them. I've just been making a lot of food, and it's great. <laughs> um, so it's one twenty-four p.m. my time, so two twenty-four p.m. your time on a Monday afternoon. We Real wanted time. to get, the, yeah, we wanted to get the show in as quickly as possible after the results this weekend, so we can get the show out as quickly as possible for anybody still doing some decision making for indie, uh, for SCG Open Indie this weekend. I had a feeling that this was going to happen. We're going to talk about some real life stuff here in a second. I had a feeling that this was going to happen during the show because it just always seems that like some of the big news you and I care about happens during the show. Yeah. But about five minutes before we went live, the Atlanta Braves made a trade for Matt Olson, the all-star first baseman for the Oakland A's. That sounds like something I should be excited about, right, Ross? We just got an all-star added to our team, whatever. But this all but assures that Freddie Freeman will not be coming back to the Braves, the team that drafted him he stayed there through the rebuild you know that you heard me talk about the show a few years ago into the world series championship this year i don't know how i feel about it yet obviously i mean let's be real i do right like i I love freddie freeman one of my favorite players of all time he's an he's an snap braves hall of fame player and if he puts up four or five more good years i think he's going to be a hall of fame player with the way the the hall of fame should go over the next 10 or 15 years and the players they allow in you know should the the metrics should change right he also has like a a very good narrative with the story with with the Braves, where he was the guy that they kept during the rebuild, led the, the team, mm-hmm. and then you know brought them a championship for the first time in what twenty seven years. Yeah, something like that. Like I I remember when we were trading everyone, we had him under like a, an eight year extension, right? You know, because we extended him when he was very young. He came up very young. And uh, they asked, they were like, are you going to trade Freddie Freeman to like the, you know, the GM, the front office or whatever. And one of them, there's a very famous quote. He's like, I'd rather cut off my left arm than trade (laughs) Freddie Freeman. You know, he's like, he's like, that's the guy, you know, because, you know, he's, he's our dude, right? Um, It was really strange getting to this point of him being a free agent. Like a lot of people were like, why didn't you sign him to an extension last year when it had been cheaper? You had exclusive rights to negotiate with him. You know, another team can't talk to you while you're under contract with another team with a, a specific team. And a lot of it came down to uh, there's a weird situation where the Atlanta Braves are the only publicly owned team in I think they're one of the only public owned teams in major sports like they don't have like a quote unquote an owner you know you don't have like as opposed to the 90s where they were publicly owned by the New York Yankees fair anyway (laughs) so you know you don't have like a Ted Turner or George Steinberg to turn to and be like hey like our team's really good this year can we up our payroll a little bit they're they're owned by an actual corporation so they have like a board and like ceos and stuff that are like yeah. okay you can spend this much money this year and going into last year yeah <laughs> and going into last year there was the um you know they're coming off the 2020 season where most teams didn't make money and in fact most teams probably lost money because of the you know the COVID situation no fans in the stands you know blah 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 right like i it's hard to feel bad for billion dollar corporations not making money but you get what i'm saying like i'm talking this is Tandon right, it is hard to feel bad for them. Yes, this is Tannen with his business degree talking and like from, you know, both ends of the sport of the fan and someone who understands the money side of things. So it's understandable why we got to the situation, but I just always thought that it would end up working out. And then the longer it took, the longer it took, you're just like, man, maybe, maybe Freddie's not coming back. And so we just traded for a guy named Matt Olson from the Oakland Athletics, who let's say Freddie Freeman's the best first baseman in baseball. That's a, you know, obviously there's Vladimir Guerrero Jr., right? We can talk about that, but let's yeah. say... 
if you think Freddie Freeman is specifically very good, Matt Olson is practically the same player, uh, like wins wise. They're both great defensively. They're both great with the bats. They're left handed. You know, the the stuff goes on and on, right? Tons of power, just very good hitters, you know, middle of the lineup kind of guy. Olsen's also a Georgian native, which is a big thing. Like they actually kind of care about that stuff. Like, you know, the, the Braves way, they're kind of players. They, they, uh, they get kids from their own backyard and stuff a lot. So uh, there's some important there. I think that's really important to have that kind of player to sell to the fan base that like you let Freddie walk, but you replaced him with one of the best players in the game at the position who's also from your area. Like he is a George. I think this is one of the only things that was going to fly without the fans like revolting. You know, because, you know, Freddie's our guy. He's been in the organization for like 13 years or something yeah. like that, right? And the fa- and the fans are riding a high. Whenever, like, you win, right. you, you you don't want to be the Marlins that win the right. title and then immediately fire sale the team and you're yeah. uh, completely irrelevant again. You want to you at least make an attempt at running it back and uh, trying to go back to back because that kind of stuff, you know, is uh, is legendary. So right. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't at, happen at least it often. looks like they're making that attempt. Yeah, yeah. And so that was never a question of, like, making an attempt to go back, right? Like, this team is very young, very good. Like, this is a team that was missing two of its best hitters last year for almost the entire season, and both of them are going to be back and healthy this year. We're, you know, missing one of our best pitchers last year, still won the World Series through all that, you know, blah, blah, blah. You asked me right before the show started. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, is it good to add one of the best players in the game? You know, like, Ronald Acuna Jr., is it good to have him back to a team that already won the World Anyway. Um, you were asking me before this, like, you know, like what kind of, like, what is this? Like what kind of move is this? So it's kind of deep on a few levels, right? So here's the thing. The Freddie Freeman thing is like dance with the girl that brought you kind of thing. You know, you know what you're getting, blah, blah, blah. Here's the problem. Freddie's on the wrong side of 30. He's about 32 right now. Right. And so if you wanted to sign him right now, you'd have to give him five, probably six year deal. He's looking for a six year deal, right? At like 30 something million a year. So you're looking at six years, 180. You know, the Dodgers and the Yankees are getting involved, so it might get up to $200 million. That's a lot of money for a player who you're going to be paying 30 something million dollars to when they're like 38 and 37. Every single deal that you you compare this to, all the players like Joey Votto, uh, Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, all the first basemen like him in the game over the last few years, those contracts have been really bad. Yeah. Like really, None of those really players bad. aged well. No. And that's not saying that's 100% going to happen to Freddie. And he's probably got at least three more years of elite in him. Like, the, I mean, he has not slowed down. In fact, he's gotten better over the last few years. Like, in his last two seasons, you've had him win an MVP and him, win a, like, lead the team to a World Series. Like, there's not much better you can do. Like, what else do you <laughs> want from a player? So that's that's one of the problems, right? Is, like, they're trying not to be... Because Atlanta's not a big market team. We're not the Red Sox. We're not the Yankees. We're, we're a mid-market team that has... You know, we're shackled a little bit. Our payroll's going to go up this year. We were one of the most profitable teams in the game last year. All that's public knowledge now because it's a public jury team. You can find those numbers. So here's the here's the important part. If you re-sign Freddie, you're re-signing him for all those years. You're committing to him, you know, being that age, and you're committing probably thirty something million a year, which is a you know large portion of your payroll. It's a lot. Olson is under contract for two more years, right? And we had to trade a ton to get him. We traded our number one, our number three, like our number eight, and like our number eleven prospects. It's a very good deal for Oakland. Oakland got a lot, right? Uh, I'm not as high on one of the prospects as some people are, but I'm really high on the other one. So anyway, you get Olsen for two years, right? Um, Olsen makes, I think, 12 to 15 this year, and then somewhere probably like 18 to 20 next year, depending Jesus. on what arbitration. Not a lot of money. 
That's <laughs> half of what you're paying Freeman for practically the same player, right? Now, the Braves are not, even though they're defending world champions and you're returning almost the entire team, they're still holes, right? Like, you still need to, like, fill some holes here. So I expect that this is not going to be the last thing that happens. They're going to go out and get, like, another outfielder, right? They're going to go out and go get another pitcher. So what they're going to do is they're going to take the 30-something million they're going to have to give Freeman, trade for Olsen for whatever he's making this year, take the other money, and distribute that amongst the team to get a very complete team all the way around and try to win the World Series again in the next couple of years while this, while this window is open. And our window is way more open than most teams when you're in this spot. Usually it's like you've got this three to four because year so window. Young. Because we're so young, exactly. And like they're trying to say, because there's there's more to this than just that, right? You're looking at some of these young players, like we've already got Ozzy Albies and Alcuna uh, for the next six to seven years under contract. We've got Austin Riley, Max Freed, guys that are very good and very integral to the team not under contract, you know, uh, Dansby Swanson comes off the books next year too. So if you want to extend these guys and pay them, they're about to get expensive, right? They're very young. They're very talented. And these are players that you want on your team. So while my heart absolutely breaks at Freddie Freeman leaving and seeing him in it, like, I have a feeling the Yankees or the Dodgers are going to get him. And it's going to be just so weird to look at that, right? It's going to look wrong. It would be like seeing Chipper Jones in a different uniform, you know? Yeah. You know, something like that. It's like if Joe Ingalls got traded to the Trailblazers. Yeah. yeah. Like, have, have you seen, <laughs> like, like when you saw Michael Jordan, uh, who was it? He played for the Bullets, right? The, the Wizards. They yeah, changed their the, name by then. They changed their name? Okay, I couldn't remember. It's yeah. like when you see Jordan in the Wizards uniform, like, they just don't show that picture, right? You're just like, that just looks weird. We're not going to actually, you know, we're not going to actually look at that, like, blah, blah, blah. It just, it's going to look and feel. Right. So my heart absolutely breaks. Like, Ross can attest to this. The news came out right when we were about to start. We were doing our pre-show stuff. And I told him, I was like, hey, man, I need I need a minute. And, like, I had to gather myself, you know. Like, I didn't cry or anything. You know, I shed a little bit of tears during the World Series just because anyone who knows me knows how much I love. This is my favorite thing in the world, right? Like, I love baseball and I love the Atlanta Braves. And my heart absolutely breaks. Because, like, I know that Freddie did all he could. And the team just, they, they're like, we just can't, we can't do this to ourselves. You know what I mean? It was, it was a business decision. decision. And, you know, good on them for not letting nostalgia run the team because you've seen that happen in sports before. But it also sucks from a fan perspective, right? Like, it hurts yeah. my heart. But my brain is like, this is the right move for now. And it just sucks. And, you know, you might look back on this, you know, four years, five years from now and be like, yeah, that was the right move. And if Freeman absolutely rakes for the next four or five years, that's fine. That's fine. You know, we might even extend Olsen, you know, because, like, we've got two years to, to work with Olsen here. And just be like, hey, we'll give you the money we were going to give Freeman, but you're going to get it down the line. So we can just push the money further down instead of using it this year, you know, kind of thing. Because uh, you know, we've got some players going to be coming off the books in the next couple of years, and you can kind of retool in some spots and stuff there. It is the unfortunate reality of being a sports fan, the unfortunate reality of running a sports franchise where, yeah, nostalgia only goes so far. Nepotism only goes so far. At the end of the day, they're businesses and they're run by businessmen, and it comes down to the dollar. Right. And some decisions are going to be motivated by that. In fact, almost all the decisions are going to be motivated by that. And uh, I know I've said it a couple times, it just breaks my damn heart, Ross. Uh, like, he's one of my favorite players of all time. He's a snap Braves Hall of Famer. And it's just going to suck to not see him and his kids around at the game. You know, I'm like, watched his kid grow up. I know that sounds weird, but he's like, you know, his kid comes to all the games and stuff. And it's going to be really strange and really hard to see it that way so well that's just the nature of uh of sports at this point players move around a lot but it makes the ones that are around for a while 
um, that much more important to the fan bases because it's so much rarer than it used to be, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So, yeah, um, you know, at least you have, I guess, I was going to say it's going to be a while until the season starts, but it's fucking mid-March, so, and they're supposed to start on time, right? Yeah, they're going to start in about a month. We start at the beginning of April. And they're going to get all 162 in. So they're going to compress the schedule by a couple weeks? Yeah, they're going to like throw in some double headers or some stuff here. They're starting a little yeah. differently in some weird ways, but they're going to get all the games in. It's going to be a very short spring training this year, which I'm all for. I think they should shorten spring training by a tiny bit anyway in baseball. It's like, you know, they, you know they've cut a preseason game out of football and just added a regular season game, which yeah. is great for them. I do think that we play because like, you know, it's from the bygone era and like of, of back when baseball players didn't make tons and tons of money when it wasn't the most lucrative sport. And some of these guys had to have like secondary jobs during the offseason. You know, you used to hear jokes back in the day that like the guys who weren't superstars were, you know, bagging groceries or whatever at their local thing. And it's like, well, they need to get back into baseball shape now. So like, you know, give them the month and a half because like hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in sports. And like you can't just, you know, unless you're Ted Williams, you can't just wake up on Christmas morning and start hitting fastballs back up the middle. You know what I mean? <laughs> and stuff and stuff. So like. It it sucks. Um, we'll stop talking about baseball now, but uh, just know that I'm going to be distraught for the next few days, even though it's about to be a flurry of moves, because I guarantee you the Atlanta Braves are not done, and they're going to make a couple other moves, and the team's going to be better for it. One yeah. other real-life thing, for anybody who, you know, some people in the Discord reached out, some people reached out to me on Twitter, uh, my dog seems very fine. I don't know if you, you, did you see this, Ross? I did not. What's going on? Uh, I had to rush Benny to the, to the hospital the other day. Oh, shit. To the vet. Yeah. So but she's um, fine. So I'll, I'll go through the story. So I'm, I'm playing with her. Right. And she one of the favorite ways to play is she has like her like bag. Oh, you have like a little it's not a bag. But we have like this thing that holds all of her toys. Right. It's like a little dog bag thing. And she'll like go grab one and look at me and like, you know, throw it on the ground. You know, dogs do that. And whatever phase we do is I'll just like take one of the balls and I'll throw it down the hallway and the hallway has rugs all the way down, you know, so she can not slip and she likes to grab it and she comes back and I throw it and it bounces off the wall and stuff. And she has to like, you know what I mean? It's, it's creative. Like she has to do yeah. it. Like she likes doing it more than playing outside. Well, she has to play. I take a ball, I throw it down the hallway and I'm kind of paying attention. Like I'm looking at my phone a little bit too. Cause I think I was talking to somebody and I look up and I see something weird happen. Like she like hitches or like her leg does something weird and she just stops and slides and just starts screaming right it's literally like thinking about it hurts my heart again like i'm having a heavy a heavy day here like it literally broke my heart I've, i haven't heard my dog scream like that like ever it's not like her usual yelp when something yeah. gets her scares her or hurts her it's like That's a non-contact acl tear yeah so like i freak out i rush grab her start loading all up all the stuff in the car i'm like holding her and she's literally like shaking so i start loading everything up in the car and I'm about to bring her in and like you know i, I text my wife i'm like hey like she's she's okay like she's quote unquote like okay but i don't know what's wrong like she's not dying but like i'm bringing her to the just letting you know i'm bringing her to the vet and i call the vet and start at, and they start asking me all these questions and um she's she just like jumps out of my lap into the into the passenger seat like she don't realize and she sits there and looks at me and just starts smiling and stops and i'm just like like are you okay and like she just seems okay so i sit there for a minute and i ask the vet about it and they're like hey monitor for a few minutes He's like, I've got you on the on the, on the schedule. Or monitor for a few minutes, see if anything changes. If nothing changes, then like she might have just pulled something or something, you know, like yeah, or whatever. So she seems fine, right? So I sit there for twenty minutes, mess with her, walk her around. Seems fine. So I'm like, all right. So I put her on the couch, take away her way to get off the couch, and like just chill. Natalie gets home. I go run an errand, and Natalie starts messaging me. She's like, hey, I'm getting a little worried. I'm like, why? She's like, she's not acting right, and she's like panting, and like when dogs pant. 
it's not always about heat. Sometimes it's about, you know, they're in pain. And she says that she started walking around with her tail between her legs and she kept trying to hide. And like, that's a thing dogs do. Like when they're like, they're not acting right, you know, they don't feel well or whatever. They'll, they'll hide because like, they don't want to disappoint their owner. Yeah. You know, like my, my dog does that whenever she's like embarrassed or like when she's hurting. So I immediately drop what I'm doing. I get in the car and I'm like, be at the front door in five minutes with everything ready to go. I drive up, get her in the car. I'm like, she's in pain. We're bringing her in. So we bring her in and, um, you know, they go through, they go through the whole thing. Um, and you know, obviously it's a dog. You can't be like, Hey, what's your, what's your pain level at here? You can't talk to them. Right. So, uh, and we had checked all of her legs, right. Too. That's like one of the first things I did. I turned her over, started like grabbing her knees and feet and stuff. I'm like, is something broken? Like, are you whatever, you know, so I can tell the doctor everything was fine. She, she'd let me move her legs around because she has a, she has a knee thing. She's probably going to eventually need surgery for it. So they bring her in and after doing a whole bunch of tests or whatever, there, there was a soft spot on her back where she was like tender, you know? So they think that she has like a disc thing or like one of the discs might've moved over and like touched her spine or like they might've touched each other and she just like freaked out and it's hurt. So, uh, the, the stuff for that is she takes painkillers and steroids multiple times a day and she's supposed to like not do much for the next four to six weeks. She's like, you know, we're not letting her play. We're not even taking her on like full walks. Like I bring her out to use the bathroom and that's about it. We're trying to keep her from doing everything. We took her stairs away from the bed, her stairs away from the couch and all of her toys are up. She has no stimulus. It sucks. She's sad. She's mad about it. But over the last few days, she's been acting more and more normal and like asking to do things and like really wanting to do things. We're making her stay. Uh, we're still being conscious of the, of the fact that like we don't want to overdo this because like looking it up, uh, very good. It had very good. Uh, the, the outcomes are most likely good, but the worst case scenarios are like paralysis. So we're like not we're not messing with that. Right. You know, kind of thing. We're not risking that. But we're pretty sure, and this is not a slight towards the vet. This is actually good. We're pretty sure she got overdiagnosed. She might have just like pulled something really bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like also she's like hopped up on steroids and painkillers. So like maybe she's just like, yeah, yeah I'm kind of great. And, you know, kind of thing. Do, do they do like x-rays or? Um, so they didn't because they didn't think it was, they checked the bones. They didn't think it was bone related. And they're like, an x-ray won't show muscle yeah. stuff. And they were like, we can do an MRI. It's obviously very pricey to get an MRI for a dog price wasn't the objective uh wasn't i mean it's objective price wasn't the the problem it was just like they're like we don't think we need it unless like this persists for like oh you know we're like this is an actual problem if she just gets yeah. better then it's fine like don't worry yeah, about it like, she might as well yeah because yeah. the trips are already pretty expensive because we had to go after hours you know this is at like 7 p.m yeah like so the they, emergency vet. You, they charge you a million dollars to walk in the door which is hey look i'm not complaining you know i got somebody to look at my dog right away when i was when i was worried about you may be thinking, Tana, you're a little overprotective. I'm going to tell you right now, Natalie and I, we're those people when it comes to our <laughs> dog. Like, I freak out. I am overprotective as hell. Like, that is my little girl. You know, I don't have kids. That's my little girl. You know, and I love her to death. She's sitting right next to me. But Ross can see me down looking at her. But for anybody who's concerned, anybody, whatever, um, I, I'm feeling a lot better about the situation. Excellent. Hopefully everything works out well. She'll be back to old self in a couple of weeks yeah absolutely so it's it's been a it's been a rough day around the the gray's household for the last few days i've, I've got this going on um you know i'll uh i'll have to go retire my my freeman stuff you know so it's been a rough few days but you know what it hasn't been rough you don't have to retire like your jerseys yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah i know you know i'm still wearing my joe ingles jersey mm -hmm. that's never gonna stop yeah yeah you know what i mean how are it's people gonna know they can't leave me yeah i know right it's 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 not that you 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 get what I'm trying to say here like it's it's still it still sucks but 
let's go ahead and talk about some magic because there was quite a bit of events over the weekend. Uh, we got some real life and some non real life, you know, some, IR, some IRL paper and some non paper results uh, of modern, pioneer, legacy, all kinds of stuff going on this weekend. So we can talk about how this Luris ban has affected things and maybe kind of influence some of your decisions going into uh, SUCon Indianapolis this weekend or any, you know, local 1K, win a box, whatever it is, FNM that you've got going on. But I would be remiss if I started getting into the into these results if we didn't give a shout out to our lovely editor Brent and his incredible run this weekend. Brent uh, was playing in the 5K that was going on at the Hunter Burton Memorial, and I'm pretty positive he went undefeated into the top eight if I remember right. I know he was like 6-0 or 7-0 yeah, he, and one. He double drew. Yeah, he went 6-0 double draw of the eight, the eight round tournament. Was the number two seed I believe going to the top playing Amulet as he normally does. Brent can never play a normal deck. Let's be real, but. uh as I'll say, I have a really cool picture of him playing with three amulets in play. And he said, he said I think he made 40 mana of that turn. Uh, unfortunately, his run came to an end in a really close match in the top four. But he got to, you know, pocket some nice change from playing over the weekend. Really good experience. And I'm sure he just absolutely adored the experience of just being in contention for an event. Because, like, let's be real, that's the best feel, right? You know, the the elevated heart rate of, like, oh, my God, I can win this. You know, you're doing really well. Your friends are rooting for you. And uh, I joked about this in the in the Discord uh, last weekend. If you had it on your bingo card, is the weekend where Brent makes more money playing Magic than both me and Ross combined in a weekend. It was last weekend, finally. So good on you, Brent. Yeah, nice job. Um, yeah. Uh, so congrats to him. Seems like it was a good weekend for Amulet all around, uh, as far as Marvin goes, since it won the main event at the, at the Hunter Burton. And this, to me, is the biggest event in terms of. Uh, looking forward to Indianapolis since it's also a paper event. Uh, it is the biggest event of the weekend at 472 people. Um, you know, that's essentially like a, a small open, right? Mm-hmm. From a few years ago, I'm sure there there have been two day opens that were smaller than that. Uh, I mean, the GP I type eight it was only like six or seven hundred. You know, not much, like not much bigger, honestly. Yeah. Um, so huge event, Amulet taking it down. Um, you know, when we look at all of the results from modern, the big takeaway to me is uh, I wasn't sure if this would be the weekend that, um, more linear decks, whether they were going big or going fast, um, would emerge. And I knew that was going to happen at some point because the loss of Luris meant that the mid range Luris decks had to devote more cards, whether in their sideboard or their main deck or both to getting an edge in the mid-range mirrors. And that would necessarily mean cutting some of their, uh, you know, disruption for more linear strategies. And so even though Luris as a card is not, um, you know, not a particularly relevant card in linear matchups, losing it chained, like set off this chain reaction of events that was going to make linear decks uh you know, much better in the metagame. And it happened this very first weekend. Uh, but the interesting thing is that it happened, there's not like a you know one or two linear decks that really broke out that you have to target. There's a pretty wide range of them, which has always been one of the awkward parts of playing modern. So we see Amulet winning the Hunter Burton event. There's also Eldrazi Tron in that top eight. There's Goblins, which is a more fair combo, along with Yawgmoth, another fair combo. And is it Breach? So three sort of fairer, a little bit slower, more resilient combo decks along with uh, Amulet and Eldrazi Tron in that top eight. In the Super Qualifier top eight that was on Moto, you have 
Um, you have, I guess, like one hammer, which has always been around. Uh, another amulet deck in fourth. We've got uh, Mono Green Tron in sixth, which was definitely a deck that you talked about last week. Storm in seventh, a deck I don't think we've seen in a million years in modern, uh, coming back to put up a top eight and burn. So a lot of linear decks there. And then we even have the one challenge that fired on Saturday. This one I think was a little bit fairer as I'm looking through the list. Yeah, I see a lot of, I do see some um, uh, rhinos, which is not a a fair deck with a sort of unfair element to it. Um, and then, you know, one uh, Yawgmoth deck in the top eight. So a lot of different combos for people to worry about coming up this weekend. Um, and I think we're going to see a modern format that is a little bit more reminiscent of the one from maybe four or five years ago yeah. where you can't really be prepared for everything. You got to pick your spots, pick your battles, try to win those games, which, you know, what? You're, you're playing in a long tournament. You can do that. You can afford to lose twice in this and event. Then, also, it being a team event means that if you have a bad matchup or two here, you can afford to lose that match and have your teammates carry you that round. Mm-hmm. So I usually in team events, I am not as worried about having some bad matchups. Same. I just want to play something that is powerful. I, I, I want to make sure that we hit a floor. Like I never want to be the person that goes like six and eight w- with a deck and that, you know, that can sink a team. But if, to play in a final still. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. If, if all three of you, uh, you know, are going 10, 5, 11, 4, 12, 3, something in that range, then you're going to be near the top of the standings. In contention, yeah. So you I just think- want everybody to be somewhere around there uh, and you should be fine. So I usually I'm usually played a little bit safer in team events. Um, just because I know I know my teammates are there to pick me up in the few rounds that, that I lose. But I also go for more uh, raw power to to make sure that can carry me through. So that you know, I wouldn't super overreact to trying to beat linear decks. But the one thing I think that this did was uh, the the fast emergence of linear decks didn't open up that window that I talked about in last week's show, where I thought John DeSaga would be a good choice because I think it's good in mid range matchups, especially with both players no longer having access to Luris because you just have that built-in engine with Ren and Saga. But um, with all the linear decks emerging so quickly, the John Saga never really got a window of opportunity to shine. And instead, we've seen Shadow sort of stay on top of the, of the mid-range heap along with, with Isn't Murktide. So those two seem to be the, the mid-range decks of choice. And Shadow has always been the best mid-range deck at beating linear strategies because Shadow gives you that great pressure. And usually those linear decks don't really punish you for dealing yourself a bunch of damage with your, you know, shock lands, fetch lands and thought seizes. So um, I was not, you know, given that the metagame seemed to be more combo heavy and big mana heavy, I was not surprised to see hammer and shadow still around. I think those decks are are both more than capable of, of winning those matchups, but um, so it it doesn't seem like we're having a huge um, shift in the metagame, but I think the way things are, are playing out is significant and this weekend, my major storyline for Modern is, you know, which of these linear decks is here to stay and which ones are sort of flash in the pants? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big question. Kind of going back to what you're talking about over uh, the last few minutes. Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. Like for team events, just play something really powerful, something that you think you can get the most possible wins with. You don't necessarily have to get it exactly right. 
but you need to be a decent portion right. Right? You don't need to win the tournament individually. Is is a big thing for team events. Just play the deck that you're going to play really well and win the most games with, kind of thing. Um, one thing that I do like, you know, you said it's not that it's not that big of a deal if you have a bad matchup in team events because your your teammates can pick you up. Yeah, I I do like to make sure that you don't have a prevalent matchup across the field where like. Let's say we're all uh, we're all bad matchups. We all have bad matchups against like the mono red burnish type thing, because like if a team is going to have all three players play that same strategy, that is the one that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And so you want to make sure that like you're you might have one person at least on the, on the matchup that's just like yeah, I've got a very good matchup there, and that the rest of you can maybe squeak one out. Because whenever you see the teams, uh, what's the word over here? Like role play together, it, it, it's usually like burn, 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 or whatever, or something along those lines. Like the, everybody playing a control deck, uh, right. you know, the all combo team. Yeah, I agree that across the three of you, if there's a sort of overlapping archetype between the formats, I would at least give it. You know, uh, try to insulate yourselves against those kinds of uh, kinds of teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing, just, you know, have some fun with your teammates. The modern super qualifier top eight that you were talking about, you know, the one that had Storm in it, you know, like you said, first time we've seen it forever, had Monogreen Tron in it, the deck that you and I both talked about as possibility, you know, hey, this this might be really playable again, you know, kind of thing. The thing that I took away from this top eight is it's eight different decks, right? Um, if I remember right, like going through all that, I think it's just eight different archetypes. Shadow, Forcey, right? Money Pile, Hammer, Amulet, Merktide. Tron, Storm, and Burn, yeah. Yeah. How cool is that? Like, that is so cool that the first event after you're banning, like, you, you got to feel good, right, if you're the people, like, in charge. If the first top eight after you're banning is just the most diverse top eight you can possibly have. And and the Hunter Burton event was also eight different decks. The challenge mm-hmm. was not. The challenge, yeah, the challenge was a little different. And then uh, I think Pioneer had some a lot of overlap at some point, too, which we could talk about a little bit as well but i gotta say overall pretty good right like seems like it's opened up things so far yeah i i you know like i said i think the major thing is that linear decks have been opened up now that um you know uh i think what one of the way i i should have explained this earlier but uh one of the uh one of the ways in which laris really warped deck building in modern was that while it was only a single card the fact that you had it available every game sort of made it the deck building equivalent of like playing three or four copies in your main deck of, you know, a powerful planeswalker or just a, a good grindy element. Because, you know, while you never had the chance to draw multiple copies, um, you know, you, you did have things like Colgan's Command and Unearth to rebuy it, but um, never too little copies. You know, you were all you always had the first one. So you know, yeah, and that meant that you could, you know, just devote more cards to that disruption. So that, so that's sort of how that dynamic works, um, because of the way the companion mechanic skews the mathematics of deck building. So we're seeing these linear decks emerge. We're seeing a pretty clear hierarchy with uh, Isn't Merktide and uh, Grixis Shadow as the top mid range decks. There's also, you know, there's a. Uh, the Rhinos deck and four color Omnath as sort of bigger mid range decks to win the mid range mirrors. Those decks looked uh, did pretty well this weekend, especially four C. Still don't understand why. And uh, with the way with the rise in these linear decks, I think those are decks that aren't looking as good coming this weekend. 
You know, why is that? Why, why are you saying that? They are. I think they're just too vulnerable. The, the four color deck, the Omnath deck in particular, doesn't have a great clock and isn't going to be able to prepare for this wide range of linear decks. They just don't have enough deck space, um, especially as an eighty card deck because they're all Yorians. You know, I, you you just can't sideboard. You can't even sideboard really the same cards against Tron and Amulet. Like yeah. <laughs> the, the, those decks have historically been awkward as because they're not as similar as other big mana decks. But then you've got these fair combo decks in Breach, Yogmoth, and Goblins. You know, Breach and Yogmoth, you can hit with some graveyard hate and be okay against them. But they both have you know fair game plans that can draw extra cards and good answers to the graveyard hate. You can, you know, goblins also can just play play through your creature removal and grind, but you have to worry about their combo. If storm is a thing, you know, I don't know. The, the storm deck looks cool. We can talk about that one specifically. Like, there's just so many different ones that you have to think about. And your deck right now is a pile of, you know, mediocre card advantage and creature removal. Um, and somehow having 14 spots to try to prepare for all of those decks does not seem really that possible to me. I think those decks, you know, they're pretty good in the in the mid range mirrors. That's what they're designed to beat. But I think we'll see a, a meta game that that is more unfair. And those kinds of slower mid range decks are you know weaker in those kinds of meta games. I will say that I do think green can be in a pretty decent spot right now because of uh, some of the pre- prevailing cards that are super just I think in really good spots. Like I think endurance is actually when you look at the field right now, endurance is good against a large portion of the field. The fact that Maybe it's never straight game winning. Like maybe if you play against like Living End or something, right? And they're like Living End, you're like, all right, Endurance here or whatever, right? But like you're looking at Murktide, Yogmoth, you know, Breach, uh, blocking against Goblins, uh, you know, just casting it against Blue Eye Control at the end of the turn as a threat. It's it can do some stuff against Shadow as well, like taking away Delirium, like just a little splash damage here or there. Um, and then against some of these decks, you know, um, just some of the removal coming out of the sideboards, like you said, like. You know, um, besage you. You know, hitting lands, artifacts, enchantments, pr- pretty impactful thing against some of these decks like Tron plus Amulet. Or you know, like you said, it's it's hard to have ubiquitous stuff for those decks. Like that one, kind of, but like doesn't really do exactly what you want to do against every other deck. You're looking at a Force of Vigor as well as a card that can be really impactful in this format. You know, really good against like Hammer and some of these other decks and stuff like that. So. I don't hate where green's at. I just don't know what shell it should be in. Because I, I kind of have the same feeling you do with like this four-color deck where it seems to really fit. It's kind of like, well, you're not killing your opponent fast enough, right? Like, God forbid you play against like Storm on the draw and they have a good draw, right? Or Amulet on the draw and they have a good draw. Like, you're going to get overpowered real fast, you know? And then you you still need really, really good draws against some of the other fair decks like Murktide because like they're super efficient. And they're just going to fly over you to Murktide. If you can't kill it, like, they're going to kill you very fast. So it's it's weird to me. I'm in the spot where you are, where, like, I see other people win with Money Pile. You know, the four-color Omnath decks, and I just don't get it. Maybe it's something I'm missing, but I just, I actually just don't get it. So that's one of the decks that I think gets a lot of press that I usually don't recommend to people unless you're a master with it. You know, it, you know, we've seen some upgrades in cards, got a bunch of free stuff to do, but, like, I I just don't get it. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I've been. You're preaching to the choir. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll put it that way. I'm just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm telling everybody at home. Like, if you're tra- if you're looking for a deck, that's one of the ones that I can't get behind personally. But I see other people doing it. One of my friends, uh, modern player, is playing that, and he's like, yeah, he just keeps five owing every league. And I'm like, I can't argue with results. Okay, I can't argue with like actual just five O's, you know, kind of thing. 
Um, I was surprised to see so little, like, like the blue-white control decks didn't top eight uh, any of these events, and I thought they would. I'm a big fan of them in Pioneer, which we'll get to in a minute. But, you know, I think the Wandering Emperor was just a perfect card for these decks. Um, I do agree that the Wandering Emperor is good. Um, a little bit less good in Modern, of course, where four mana is quite a bit. Um, and you're competing with Jace. Um, one of the issues, I think, with Control for this weekend is that the the metagame widened considerably. The same issue that I talked about with, with Four Color Omnath, you know, having all these linear decks and the, you know, aggressive mid-range decks and the more defensive mid-range decks all prevalent in this metagame along with your, you know, burn decks and your you know, spell-based combo, creature-based combo, slow combo, fast combo, big mana of all kinds. You know, that's about as wide as we've seen modern in, you know, a long time. I think modern has been in a state of flux um, since, uh, you know, from the release of MH2 to about, I would say, two months ago or so. Uh, maybe the, yeah, the start of the new year, really. That six-month period, modern was constantly changing. Um, but you never really saw weekends that were, that had a huge range of decks. Um and at least not the the same range that we saw this weekend, uh, especially with the representation of linear decks. You know, huge range of different strategies and archetypes, and not just you know decks with different names. So that's always been a bad sign for control. And you know, it, things will narrow as time goes on, and and uh, we've you know whittle down which decks are real and which decks are just, you know, ha having a good weekend in a more unstable part of the metagame. But for now, I, I think it's not a good time to be playing Control in Modern because things are just so uh, much less predictable than they have been. You know, in the last couple of months, as things narrowed around Hammer and Shadow, I think playing Control at that point made, made a lot of sense as long as you, you know, built it right and, and knew what you were, you were doing. Um, but now there's just, you're being pulled in too many different directions. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. All right, what did you kind of want to go over next? Uh, so I want to remark a bit on how the aggressive mid-range decks are being built because I know well, right after the ban, everybody uh, you know was trying to just jam Merktide Regent in their shadow decks. I also saw people build you know Grixis Merktide decks, so uh, that were just splashing black in a Merktide shell for discard spells. Um, you know, and playing more counters so that there was like, do we play the more uh, uh, like removal heavy and then drown in the lock uh, kind of disruption package that Shadow has? Or do we play the counterspell Archmage's Charm package that Merktide had? Um, and while the winner of the super qualifier was playing Grixis Shadow with Merktide, I think that, you know, I've looked over the list. I'm pretty sure that's the only Grixis Shadow deck with Merktide that you see putting up a top finish. The rest of them are all look pretty similar to what they did before Luris, just cutting Luris, often playing Gigantha instead, um, you know, still playing Croxa as that additional threat on top of the one drops instead of Merktide Regent. So it does not appear like, you know, just slamming Merktide in your shadow deck is a slam dunk. And I was always a little skeptical of it. I think the threat itself, you know, makes sense. It's a really good card and super efficient in that kind of deck. It um, makes the mana so yes. wild. That's the problem. Like the mana, you know, you, you were more, much more of a blood crypt deck. That's what Shadow has been. That was your default first turn. If I'm cracking a fetch, I'm almost always getting blood crypt. Now, you know, the mana base for uh, Azax's deck is two water grave, two steam vents, one blood crypt. 
Like they're being in forced to trim, yeah. yeah, along the swamp. They're being uh, among their shock lands. They're being forced to trim down on the one that is still probably the best one because you're just forced to get blue lands so that you can make sure you cast your Merktide regions. That that ends up being pretty awkward. You know, there are games where you want to cast Unholy Heat plus a DRC on turn two or Thoughtseize plus Shadow on turn two, um, and uh, the, you know that. You can't do that and have double blue up for Merktide, so there's a little bit more of a of stress on you to make three land drops in each game. And Shadow often doesn't do that as an 18 land deck, even with some cantrips. the The Merktide list is also not playing Dress Down in the main; they're just playing more Considers, you know, presumably to enable Merktide Regent. They have some Dress Downs in the sideboard, so they're using a lot of their sideboard space to replace the main deck because the main deck is being, you know, shifted to support this new threat. Dress down, a really important card in some matchups, um, but now you have less access to it. So there's some real cost to getting Murktide in the deck, and I'm personally not sold that it is the right way to go. I think I, I would stay with Croxa myself, um, you know, mainly to make the mana better. I'm, I'm always harping on getting better mana bases, but um, you know, uh, we'll continue to see this weekend. You know, the, this is the sort of thing that takes a month or so to, to sort out based on results and, and people testing and tuning deck lists. So uh, personally, I would err towards the Croxa side of things, but um, right now it's up in the air and the, the Murktide decks, you know, none of them are playing discard spells that, that never made sense to me. Like you, you just don't want thought season counter spell in the same deck. It, I, it's, it's hard to explain. I, I'm actually planning to write something about that uh, down the road. Um, but like they, those two cards don't go, they don't go together. <laughs> yeah. Like when you look at their deck, yeah, you're looking at, it's got thoughts. He's got inquisition, but no counter spells. Also, it's like you want to be able to counter spells as quickly as possible. It's in your deck, right? You need to be able to have the threat of it on turn two or turn three. If you're leaving up mana, this deck's a not leaving up mana. It wants to spend its mana in the first couple of turns, developing threats or attacking your hand. And then on turn three, four or five, then you want your double blue and you're casting Merc tide. Like you're not leaving up double blue for counter spell. So Everybody was like trying to have their cake and eat it too. And it feels like you're just playing the black red deck where you have duels that also tap for blue. And on turn four or five, once you've, you know, traded a bunch of resources, trade a bunch of resources, now I can cast a Merc Tide. Like I like this build a lot more than the ones earlier where everyone was trying to do everything. You know, they're trying to have the best of the shadow deck and the best of is it Merc Tide and put it into one deck. And it's like, no, if you want Merc Tide as a threat, put it in your deck and cast it like don't bring over the counter spells and stuff like that yeah exactly and you know you can say that drown in the lock is, is a counter spell that's a staple in shadow but the the key there is that it's not just a counter spell so you can afford to tap out aggressively and you're not going to make that drown in the lock dead because you can just untap a turn later two turns three turns later and cast it to kill a creature that's already on the battlefield yeah, but then you do get yourself yeah, you you do then get access to those spots where, you know, when you're playing a discard heavy deck, you're you're always at the mercy of the top of your opponent's deck, and now with drown on the lock, sometimes you do get that you know uh, have your cake and eat it two situation where you're able to disrupt them early, get your threat down, that untap, and then have the counter spell up. So yeah, the, the flexibility of drown on the lock is so important. Exactly, everybody's been in that spot where like. You're, you're fall behind or they resolve some spell and you fall behind and you draw your card for turn and it's counter spell and you're like well shit you know like not only does this not affect the, what's going on with the board it's now late and probably not going to do anything but drown of the lock doesn't fall into that if you need an actual counter spell you know you see the three stubborn denials in the sideboard that they're playing as well so 
good card for the decks where you really, really need that one more cheap interactive thing for the uh, to interact on the stack. I always find it weird when it's or interesting when someone chooses Stubborn Denial over Flusterstorm in this environment, but it just depends on exactly what decks you're trying to target. Plus, like, hey, you might be trying to hit, you know, Planeswalkers and stuff with it. You know, now that things have changed quite a bit and your 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 targets are different, maybe Stubborn Denial hits more things than Flusterstorm does. So that could be a big thing and a big nod to that. I mean, I'm not trying to say the Flusterstorm's wrong here because, hey, Azax won a giant you know, super qualifier online, which is a very hard tournament to win, they know what they're doing. They, they apparently built a very well-made deck. Also, I do like the um, some of the inclusions in the sideboard for the matchups that go a little bit longer. They have a uh, way to kind of turn into this, like, mid-range deck. Like, you see, you know, you mentioned the dress downs not being in the main. There's three dress downs in the sideboard, but there's also two Liliana the Veil and two Season Pyromancer in the sideboard. Cards that you and I specifically mentioned you know, a few weeks ago, and cards that get better after the banning of Luris. And this is just like, you know, uh, th these cards, you know, maybe not always coming in together, but in certain matchups where like, hey, I anticipate playing a longer matchup, or, you know, I just want this threat that stays in play and always affects my opponent's hand kind of thing, or I need a season Pyromancer because I need to be able to go a little bit wider while also, you know, filtering through my deck, you know, kind of things. I like that the sideboard is like kind of transformational but not in the typical sense back in the day where you'd have like the six creatures in your creatureless deck you know six creatures in the sideboard in your control deck or something like that but you can kind of change your deck and how you want to do it right you're like well you know i don't really want you know to be counterspelling any of this in this which like drone lock is still just a good card right but you're like uh maybe you know i don't need so many you know cards that disrupt the hand here i need more staying power so let me get these lilianas and these and these or you know your opponent is going to have a pile of removal and you just want right. to cut something like DRC right. that yeah. is just going to trade one for one and know that I'm going to go down on threats, but I'll win the game with these powerful sources of card advantage, whether it's Season Pyromancer, Liliana, Croxa, uh, and leave my, hopefully leave my opponent with some dead removal in their hand at the end of the game. We used to do this in we used to do this in Legacy all the time. We used to have a way to you know you board out your Delver of Secrets, right? And you would just lean on you know some of your Shroud threats against the decks that have just a million copies of Swords of Palau shares. And then you know you have your dress downs for matchups where they're good against your opponent, or you can just cheese out a win as well. You know, like you can just be like attack you with my Death Shadow. People still forget that's a thing. You know, like a thirteen you. You know, don't forget this card also cantrips. So like in those matchups, you know it's going to replace itself. That's a big deal. You're just churning through your deck. You're casting all your spells. It makes your Merc Tides better, et cetera, et cetera. You know, getting more cards in your graveyard quickly. It's good stuff. I, I like this deck a lot. I uh, I was what I was interested to see if someone wasn't going to go with a full Merc Tide version. Like, they're like, I didn't want double blue. I was wondering if um, Gurmang Angler was going to start to maybe make a comeback. You know, but I don't know if we're ever going to see the big fish again. I miss, the, I miss Gurmang Angler so much. The, the fact that people now have to pack removal to answer Murktide means that they're incidentally being better against Gurmag, you know, Solitude, Teferi, all of Staples, uh, and it loses straight up to Gurmag. And often these days now is smaller than Tarmogoyf, you know, when they're putting Sagas in their graveyard and Baubles and things, you know, getting Goyf to a 5-6 is a, a lot more common these days than it was three, four years ago when Gurmag Angler was roaming around the modern tables. Yeah, exactly, right? And, like, m maybe this is something you need to be doing in Legacy more, where people are, like, trying to beat this by bringing in, you know, four or five versions of Red Elemental Blast, and you're like, all right, we'll Gurmag you, and they're like, I can't bolt or rub that. So so maybe I'm 
right thought wrong format yeah maybe no, for me here that now you're now you found an edge if that's what's going on in legacy then you know it makes a lot more sense there people but, are yeah we're back in this we're back in the spot of main decking reb we're back in the the joe Lissette days of uh you know, <laughs> we got reb main we'll, we'll figure it out right if they're not playing they're not playing blue well i'll probably get a win for a long game anyway so i'll just brainstorm it away but but yeah, like I think the coolest thing that we're seeing from the modern results this weekend, and we can still go into some more of this if you want, is just, I mean, I, I've mentioned it, but like the diversity is great. It's great for us, you know, like you talk about this, this is fun. Not so great if you were looking for, hey, pick me a deck for this weekend, right? Unless you're like, I was a little worried about Shadow. Well, look here, someone figured it out, apparently. So here's a Shadow deck for you. Or if you're like, oh, I wasn't so sure, you know, the money pile could still hand up. Or hey, you know, I really liked Hammer. I don't know if Hammer is going to survive. Hammer did well this weekend still, you know, depending on it. You could, you could build it however you want. You know, it's still got the blue versions and stuff like that too. So, or if you're an old school Storm player and you're like, you know what? Maybe Storm does have a good spot right now. You know, maybe maybe people aren't respecting the Stormy boys as we used to call them back <laughs> in the day at, uh, at SCG. Um, what else stuck out to you for the modern? Um, so... What's the uh, another thing that is how the amulet decks have been built? Uh, recently, at least what I've noticed is that they were playing Hanwar Battlements instead of, and not playing Boris Garrison and um, and uh, Slayer Stronghold. I think that was just a nod to deck space a lot of the time. Well, some um, of them are still doing it too. You're getting a little bit of a mix now, though. Yeah, you're, well, you're getting more of the the, right. the Slayer Stronghold. Uh, I, there were four lists across the three tournaments. Three of them were playing Stronghold. The one that wasn't was the one that won the Hunter Burton. So the, the you know highest finishing one from the weekend still uh, playing Battlements. But I think that playing Battlements made a lot of sense to me pre Luris Band because the metagame was very fair, and you just wanted space for. You're either another green bounce land to make your mana more consistent or a different utility land because you effectively clear up one spot because if Battlements replaces Stronghold and then Boris Garrison doesn't need to be replaced because you already have Valakut uh, to get the red mana when you need it. So you sort of get an extra spot for a land. Usually it gets replaced by a green bounce land, but it, it could be something else. Um, however, the Slayer Stronghold Sun Home, um, you know, oh, you also get to replace the, the Sun Home. Uh, because that, that's just gone. So you 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 you, were, you get an extra green bounce land and you get an extra utility land spot. Um, but the Sun Home ends up being pretty important in matchups where you're racing, where you can just deal 16 damage out of nowhere, sometimes just the full 20 if you have two amulets, which is pretty easy to do now that you have, uh, you know, Urza Saga to tutor for them. And so with this metagame where there seems to be a lot more unfair decks, a lot more decks that you want to race against, I think it makes more sense to go back to that build. So I was not surprised to see that. Um, I think Amulet right now is great. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to look at it, each of these um, these unfair decks and then see which ones I like and which ones I don't. But I know Amulet I, I like. I think one of the keys for Amulet to be really good is that you have to have a dominant late game. You know, everybody thinks of Amulet as this fast combo deck because they remember those you know draws where you just die on turn two or three. But you really want to be able to cast your Titan even when you don't have an Amulet, especially now in a prismatic ending world where your Amulets aren't surviving. Um, you want to be able to just resolve a Titan and be very far ahead. And in the Field of the Day era, that did happen. You know, you just set up this end game with zombies or you set up with uh, Valakit and... Um, and Dryad, if you had a Dryad, 
Now you still have the Valakut Dryad plan, but Urza Saga is another plan, and she's making a bunch of giant constructs. The problem was that uh, in the Luris era, like decks were robust enough that they could beat that uh, pretty, you know, pretty reliably. Now I think it, it's significantly stronger because they're, the mid-range decks of late game isn't as strong as it used to be. So you sort of gain in comparison. So to, to me, well, you know, Amulet is a deck to beat for this weekend uh, and definitely top of my list of linear decks that I want to have a good matchup against. Um, as far as the other ones go, Tron, I'm less high on. I think it was good for this weekend because th- you know people were still figuring things out. But the more people figure things out, the less good Tron gets because Tron just doesn't really change that much. I think Tron's better in an actual open than it is in a team event where like you're you're going to be playing more against the exact top represented decks. If you get what I'm trying to say here, like you're you're definitely incentivized yeah. to play better. Tron decks takes out the trash. Event. Yeah, Tron is very like it's one of the main reasons I played it so much. I was like I thought it was at the time that I was playing it. I also thought it was just one of the best decks in the format. Period. But like it was just so good at beating all the because like anyone who tests you if you played modern on the SCG tour during those years you'd play like nine different decks over like twelve rounds and there'd be some random stuff in there too like you'd play against like Merfolk you know you'd play against Jund multiple times when like maybe people should have put the Jund cards down you know kind of thing at that point and you just got so many free wins of just hey I've got Karn on turn three you know kind of thing but like you said I think it was a good choice for this weekend maybe not so much this weekend coming up you know definitely better in a open field and what i mean by that is like you're playing by yourself against 600 other people who have brought their own deck right and it's just their tournament you're not playing against a team where uh card availability is less of an issue like don't forget that card availability will become less of an issue with team events they're gonna play whatever deck they think is is right because only one of you needs a modern deck, and you can all you can all pull your resources together, kind of thing. And two, you're incentivized to play one of the better decks possible because it's not just yourself that you're playing for. You're not like, oh, I want to take a risk this week, and you're like, well, if if I take a risk and I'm really wrong, I just screwed over two more people in this event. And you have to really trust your teammates to do that kind of things. Like we were okay with you doing that, we were okay with Brennan doing it. I never really took a risk because I just played the same damn thing all the time, right? It'd be a risk of me not playing it. You know, there's a couple times where I talked about not playing it. And y'all were like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, could you could you just play the 70% win, win percentage deck, please? But, um, but yeah, so, like, it's an interesting thing this weekend of, like, what you choose. And, like, do you do you have a clear one? Like, if you had to play modern this weekend, which I think you are, right? Are you I am in the modern seat. That is, because you were a little iffy for a second there. I know Todd was having a problem. Do you know what deck you're playing this weekend? I'm very likely to play creativity, but right, I'm right. going to talk about that with my team later mm-hmm. today. Uh, if creativity uh, was not, you you can't play it. What what would be your pick right now? Um, I I like Amulet. Um, Do you think you could play it at the level that you would need? Oh, to play it I've at? I've played a lot of Amulet. I'm I'm pretty familiar there, so that's not a problem. Um. The, the biggest issue is that I'm always wary playing linear decks that have a target on them, and I do think Amulet is going to have a target on it. Um, so that would give me a little bit of pause, but I would I would strongly consider that. I also think some graveyard decks are good. There's not as much graveyard hate around this weekend. I think that's part of the reason you saw a Storm deck sneak into a top eight. Um, and, you know, so like Dredge and Living End, are decks that I would also consider, and uh, I like the Breach deck. The is a Breach deck that top eight of the the Hunter Burton. That deck didn't really do that. Like that deck didn't change much, 
but because it plays Emery, it never really got to utilize Luris, or you you would have to sacrifice Emery to play Luris. Now you don't have to do that. So I think that deck just sort of you know gets better in general from other decks getting worse, and it gets to play the card that it wants to play anyway. Um, and then you uh, you have uh, you know a very you have a robust combo. You have a sort of aggro beatdown plan with, with DRCs and Raghavans, um, and you have a little bit of disruption. So that deck is versatile enough that I like it. That that would be a deck that I'd be a little bit more concerned with my ability to, to pilot it well. I've, I've played it a few times, um, you know, especially on Versus, and I've learned a bit from Corey, who's played a, a, quite a bit with it. Um, but th- those are all decks that I like. Um and but it's very likely to be to be creativity. If uh, I had to choose one for this weekend, I'm pretty sure I'm playing Death Shadow of Murktide. It, it's like the one that kind of fits my playstyle, I think, the most. I, I would do that. Um, if I thought Tron was in a better spot, obviously I could you know see myself doing Tron because I really wouldn't need that much practice with it. You know, like from the practicality standpoint. But I will say this: there's like four or five other decks that I'd be like completely okay piloting and playing. I think I think they're I think the format's pretty wide open. I think there's a lot of really good choices for this weekend, and we're gonna find out even more after this weekend, right? Like we're gonna get more info and stuff for it. So we're gonna be finding out is you know is what we're saying true, or is the format gonna shift completely again? We'll just have to wait and find out. Yeah, I, I want to be interesting to see how how sideboard shift. Because there's so many more things to, to think about this weekend that you, you might not have otherwise thought about. Is the paper meta game going to be significantly different than what we're seeing online? You know, the Hunter Burton, which was a big paper event, still had a good amount of linear decks in the field, but they're the ones that are a little bit slower and more resilient. You know, it's Eldrazi Tron, Goblins, B- Breach, and Yogmoth. These are not like the burn, you know, get you dead kind of decks. Um, so maybe those are the ones that are, you know, seeing a lot more success. Uh, you know, infect would be also in that sort of get you dead quick kind of, uh, kind of plan really, uh, plying itself on its own speed. Um, you know, storm can do that, but storm is, is oddly resilient, uh, in my experience. And I've played a bit with modern storm over the years. I will say for, as far as storm goes, I'm not super high on the deck. I've just every time I've played it, I've always come away a little unimpressed, I do like Wish in the deck. This the list plays two copies, but I also really, really like the four copies of Remand. This is a card that I'm once again considering in my creativity list. I think I'm going to play some. Um, you know, just the card got, that I talked about oh, last yeah. week. Yeah, I think there's a, a big winner from the ban. Curves are going up, and you know when people are playing three and four mana spells, Remand gets really, really good. I, I just have this. Oh, I just like picture myself remanding a Murktide that just got. They just removed all this cards in the graveyard, and oh, it just gives me goosebumps all over my body, Ross. It just feels really good. Yeah. So four copies of Remand in the Storm deck. You know, they, they've played Remand over the years. You you often saw three, like three or four years ago, when this deck was pretty popular. But I think four copies makes a ton of sense. It's always been awesome with Brawl to be able to go turn three, play my Brawl, have Remand up, get a loot out of it in addition to the Cantrip. And stop your removal spell or, or whatever way you're trying to kill me, and kill and just set up for a turn four kill that is a lot more, uh, you know, it's easier resilient. Yeah, yeah. Also, it does some cool stuff because I've played Remand since the day it came out. It's one of my favorite match cards of all time. You do have the the tricksy stuff where you remand your own spell, especially like in Storm. We've seen the things where like 
they're going off and trying to kill you with grape shot and they might not have enough spells to just kill you with the one grape shot but they have a ton of mana and what they can do is they can play grape shot put all the copies on the stack remand the actual copy of grape shot the, and yeah, the original again yeah, yeah because they, when it, the you know the copies aren't going to go away when you remand the original they're all separate on the stack uh, yeah, that's a classic way for a storm to kill. That's actually a way they they can kill without even like going off with past in flames. Because you know, if you just, especially if you've dealt a little bit of damage attacking in with you know an electromancer or a brawl, your opponent has maybe dealt themselves some damage with fetches, shocks, thought seizes, you know, and they're at thirteen, fourteen life. You can get to seven storm, remand a copy that that'll deal six. Uh, if if so, say grape shot is the seventh spell. Uh, and then cast it again. Now you've got nine more. That's fifteen damage right there. That's six plus nine. Um, so you're the math guy for for yeah. us. So I'll, you know, I'll if, Storm, if Storm is n, you're getting n minus one, and then n plus two, so two n plus one. Ross, we're talking about math. Why are you bringing letters into this? Like I'm, I'm already confused. <laughs> that's just math. But yeah, I, think I still remember that day in middle school when they like started to teaching algebra, and I'm just like, like yeah, this what? makes perfect sense. Yeah, so many kids like, in the class are just like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why is there an n and an x in my math? You know, my uh, multiplication table. But no. Uh, so yeah, modern looks pretty wide open. I'm pretty excited about to see what happens this weekend. You know, I do think there's some clear winners, some clear losers out of the last week, like you said. But we'll have, I think we need a little more information to, to be like, this is exactly what I think you should be doing, at least on my end. You know, I think you've parsed the information a little bit more than I have and have a little clearer of a view. But I'm still expecting to see quite a I wouldn't be surprised to see like five, six decks in the top eight. Oh, yeah, de- definitely. And the, the main thing we're seeing is that. It's it's just harder to prepare for everything at this point, um, and uh, that creates a more even field, right? Because no, you know, even if your deck, let's say, like, uh, you know, if we if we gave you a, a twenty five card sideboard, you know, I'm sure Shadow could be just be the best deck because it'll be prepared for everything adequately, and it's going to improve in sideboarding more than than the linear decks. But when you only have the fifteen, you got to pick and choose, and it, it's ironic that you know Luris, a card that nominally takes up a sideboard slot, it actually freed up sideboard space because you you didn't need to sideboard those season pyromancers and Lilianas. Not that you you know you the didn't just because you you needed to be a Luris deck like with Luris you just didn't really need them, and so now the shadow decks are devoting two three four sideboard slots to winning opposing mid range mirrors when before they were able to just use those 14 slots to be much better against, uh, you know, the much more interactive and appropriate ways against linear decks. And, you know, maybe they had an extra Culligan's Command that would be good in the mid-range mirrors because it's a two-for-one, but that was also there for Hammer and for, you know, um, it's not no longer as good against Amulet as it used to be, but I'm sure there's some other linear decks that it's good against, like the Affinity-style decks, you know, and, uh, and things like that. So... Um, yeah, I, I think that's going to be the 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 big you know question mark for this weekend is which of these linear decks do you prepare for? Which ones do you just ignore? And the people that get that question right are going to see more success. You know, and it's a difficult question because even if you're right looking at the metagame, you know, breakdown uh, and say like you know I'm thinking nobody else is going to pick up Storm even though you know made a top eight for the first time in a while. You know, you know, a difficult deck to play for sure, and you know, people aren't aren't going to flock to it for that reason. 
you know, there still might be you know, Caleb Shearer there playing his Storm deck, and you, you might have to go through him. So, you know, that's kind of the the awkwardness of Magic tournaments that you just have to, you know, make the best decision you can and live with the results. Um, so, yeah, that, like, that, that to me is... That to me is actually a bigger question than what deck am I going to play? It's how do I want to build my deck? My creativity deck, I wrote an article about it you know, a month ago, and my deck list is going to be probably 5, 10, 12 cards different, which is a pretty significant change for a deck that has a lot of slots pretty well locked in. Um, and it's, you know, um, my sideboard, the one that I'm, I have right now, nominally, um, you know, I haven't written everything out, uh, is, you know, I think over half the sideboard has changed from my most yeah. recent list. So yeah, exactly. uh, th- that's that's going to be the, the the big change. How decks are built is going to cha- shift uh, over these coming weeks as opposed to, you know, a lot more decks coming in. Because right now we're sort of at max capacity of number of decks we're seeing put up results. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely really, really good points. Uh, before we transition into Pioneer, I want to make sure that everybody at home Remember to go check out our sponsor, our main sponsor right now, and that is Barrister and Man. That's Man with two ends. Barristerandman.com for all your soap, shaving, all that kind of good stuff needs. There's a bunch of other stuff on their site. Make sure you check them out. Barristerandman.com. Use the code. What's the code, Ross? It is MTG Rants 2022. Yeah, MTG Rants 2022 for 15% off at checkout. Make sure you check them out. Uh, speaking of checking things out, the Pioneer format this weekend, a little less diverse than than modern by a lot, I would say. The big winners from this weekend. Definitely got to say uh, Wynoda. Uh, and definitely, like, well, I want to say Phoenix was a big winner, but nothing really changed for them. They just put up results. And then all forms of mono red were your real, real big winners. I, from I would Pioneer. add Niv-Mizzet to that list, too. Well, see, I, you say that, like, uh, it. it yeah, it like won one of the events. It's just hard. Again, it's like money pile for me. I, I never win with the deck. I lose against it every time I play it. I just don't understand. You know, maybe I just need to aggressively mulligan to carry it or something. But the overarching, like, prevalence of these three decks that I'm talking about in the top piece was really impressive to me. And especially with Mono Red being kind of like a new thing on the block. A little different than what we've seen. And what I'm talking about with these is the one that we're seeing a lot here is they're mono red in the forms of we've seen the ones that are like the typical ones you've seen in the past with, you know, the prowess creatures, Eidolon, Bone Crushers, Light of the Sage, Skewer, and a bunch of Burn, right? Or we've seen a lot of versions, and I mean a lot of versions, that have Chandra Dress to kill. So they're, you know, they're going all the way up to like the three slot. You're seeing Kamano faces Kazakhzan, you know, a card that I was huge on in this environment, and a card that I've actually started to notice does a little something that I didn't think about. It actually helps out a lot, especially with the prevalence of um, uh, Winota, is the creature, when Kazakhstan turns into the 2-2, it makes, uh, if a creature your opponent controls dies, it gets exiled that turn. So having that in play against some of the creatures in the format, really big important thing. Or Plight Phoenix. (laughs) Like or like Phoenix, or if you look at the uh, Winota decks, they have a a little 2-drop that's really annoyingly good, right? In the green-white decks against called Voice of Resurgence. Oh, the yeah. fact that it just blocks a bunch of times, but now you can just shock it, and it just goes away. In the past, sometimes when you shock a Voice of Resurgence, the token that gets left behind is bigger than what you just killed. And that's kind of scary, but instead, you know, it, it kind of works with the curve here. You know, in turn three or whatever, your 2-2 comes into play for free. You're like, kill your kill your block or attack with everything now. Trigger prowess and some of my stuff. Remove your thing. So... 
Because I do think that those are going to be the two most prevalent decks, or the three most prevalent decks this week. I think these three in particular are going to be the most prevalent decks played in India. I think it's going to be Wynoda, Mono Red, and Phoenix. Um, yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, and uh, I do agree. Like the, This is a change in, in the way red decks have been built. It's a little bit less burn heavy. You know, we're not splashing white for Boros Charm. All of our uh, uh, burn can also go to creatures. I'm seeing Skewer play with Fire, Spikeville Hazard, Wild Slash, so, and Stomp. So we're a lot more concerned with answering creatures because we've got a lot of one-drops we want to get through. Um, and we have Chandra as that additional source of card advantage uh, in addition to Light Up the Stage and Bone Crusher Giant to you know continue playing uh, well into the late game if we need to. So um, yeah, a, a more traditional just aggro red deck here than what we've seen. I'm interested to, to I guess Eidolon is just so good against Izzet Phoenix that they don't have the immediate answer. Uh, that's not a card that I think in general like fits really well into this deck because sometimes it can punish you if you spend a lot of time killing your opponent's creatures. Um, and it, it's a, another card that gets weaker as the game go, goes along because your opponent's going to, a lot of decks are going to start casting just bigger spells. Um, but, you know, is it Phoenix being so prevalent the, the way it is? Uh, I still think it, it makes a lot of sense just for metagame reasons. So, um, yeah, I, I do think the deck is good. Um, Chandra, you know, Chandra Restrakill is just a really, really powerful card. I wrote about it during preview season, uh, and this is sort of this is the exact kind of shell that I think it's great in. You know, you can have turns where you you know play a a prowess creature or two over the first two turns, and then turn three go Chandra plus make a mana uh, skewer a creature because Chandra you know enable plays really well the skewer by uh, dealing the one damage to your opponent to turn on um, what's the mechanic a spectacle. Uh, so skewer away the blocker and now your prowess creatures have got double pumped your opponent's under a ton of pressure on their life total they're they're behind on the battlefield and you've got this planeswalker that's ready to start drawing cards so really really good i'm very i'm very happy to see a lot of one mana plays here so you can get those double spell turns with chandra that's something i harped on in my article during uh you know that previous season and it's four play with fire two wild slash two spike field hazard and then your big you know burn spell that looks like it costs three really you cost one with chandra in skewer along with the 12 front one drop so there's a uh, and light of the stage, another spectacle card. So there's what, 4, 8, 12, 16, 20, 28 cards that you can cast off of a Chandra Plus. Plus Kumano in some of the builds. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, I'm counting that in, in the 28. Okay. I think gotcha. I think both, I think the main decks of, uh, it, it took two top eight spots in one of the challenges, fifth and sixth, and the main decks are exactly the same. Yeah, don't forget, like sometimes you have red cap melee in your deck after sideboarding, stuff like that. Like, sometimes they have these like sideboard yeah, spells. Rending volley. As well. Rending volley, yeah, um, lots, lots of stuff like that. It you know just it just helps you know make sure, especially the low land count deck. You know that you, you can double spell on some of your turns and triple spell maybe even with with light up the stage because it does trigger you know light up the stage right away, which is nice. You can be like add a mana, deal you one, light up the stage for one mana now without having to like move into combat first. It lets you. I'm a big fan of anything that lets you do light up the stage pre combat in your main phase. That doesn't mean I have to like throw a shock at you. Or something, you know what I mean? I don't have yeah. to use a card. Like, there's not many cards in the format that do that. Yeah, and and then, you know, I haven't expended any resources, and I have all my mana available to cast the spells immediately and really to leverage that value. So their sideboards are two cards different. One of yeah. them has fourth Whirling Vortex and third gate, Cemetery Gatekeeper. The other one has two Red Cat Melees over those two cards. Um, so Pretty I, good spot to I have to card. imagine, you know, it makes me think that, like, these two people work together. Um 
you know, I, I don't know if they did it or, or not, but uh, an impressive result from that deck. Um, and I agree. I, I do think, you know, Wynota, Red Deck, and, and Phoenix definitely seem like they're going to be the most popular. Um, I do think it was a good weekend for Niv-Mizzet, like I said. One, also one a good second. weekend for Lotus Field, but those decks just aren't going to be as popular. Lotus Field for it being a combo deck, and combo decks never got super popular unless they're really broken. And Niv-Mizzet for being really expensive. Yeah, the the, the Lotus Field deck is kind of like the... I, I don't want to say this in a bad way. It's like the, the, the weirdo deck, you know, like the... The strange person that always shows up with the off-the-wall deck for all the tournaments, it, it feels like people just shy away from that deck for how good it actually is. Like, I feel like, you know, it should be played more and represented more. I, I did want to say some, another thing about the Mono Red deck, because I, I do think this is one of the decks I would heavily consider for this weekend. I think I would either play Mono Red, I would play um, Wynota, or I'd play Blue-White Control. I do love the fact that there are just, like, four Den of the Bugbear now. I think that land is just absurdly good in these oh, decks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, might be, in general, I think, like, a, a slightly worse creature land than Mutavault. But in this deck, with all the one-mana plays in Eidolon, you really can't afford colorless lands. Uh, you want to be double-spelling on turn two or casting a double red card and double-spelling on turn three. Um, so Den being a, a red creature land, really, really powerful. They also get Ramanap Runes and a Sokinzin. So, you know, they have nine utility lands in the red deck as well. And that is a form of card advantage that really makes sure that they still have things to do with their mana going along. So this is not an all-in kill you by turn four or I'm dead red deck. This is a deck that can kill you by turn four and you better, you know, be prepared to play some defense. But, you know, you also better be prepared to play with them as though they're a mid-range deck as the game goes along and, you know, respect their attrition capability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, um, I know you're playing with Todd Anderson and he's yeah. been screaming about banning Wynota, but I do think you should heavily consider playing the deck for this weekend because I do think it has some of the most free wins in the format, which is great. Like you just have certain draws where if you have a Wynota, they're just dead. It almost feels like, um, the cat combo back in the day in standard where you're playing like kind of a fair format, right? Like people are playing like creature decks and stuff and like, you know, typical control decks where you're like, but they're put in a situation where they need to cast a spell early in the game and they have to be in the situation where like, well, if you have a Wynota, like you just have a Wynota. I can't, if I play around it, I'm not going to do anything for the next three turns and then I'm just going to fall behind you playing normal stuff, you know, because the deck just has a bunch of creatures in it too. Yeah, and now with Brutal Cathar has interaction, it can just get up, you know, flood a little bit and hard cast Tovalar's Huntmaster, and that's a card that can dominate a game. So I, I agree, Wynota is, you know, one of the decks that I'm going to recommend to Todd. I know he was streaming with it earlier today and said that he was considering it. Um, so I, I was happy to hear that. Uh, definitely one of the decks I like. Um, another deck I like in this format is Azorius Control that you mentioned earlier, the Wandered okay. Emperor, such a great addition. And I do think the Pioneer metagame is going to, you know, whereas the Luris Band ex expanded the modern metagame, I actually think it contracted the Pioneer metagame a little bit. You know, we, we really did not see a lot of sacrifice decks over this weekend. There was like, you know, one copy of Jund, I think, floating around, one copy of Rakdos floating around. Those decks really depended on Luris to give them that strong late game and attrition matchups. Uh, at least the Rakdos deck did. And, uh, you know, the Jund version, I think, you know, preyed on the fact that it had Karn to be shutting down the other Sacrifice decks. And, and you know, that is no longer as good of, uh, of a card in the metagame. So Sacrifice decks are way down. Um, and if you're just, you know, building a control deck that needs to beat, 
you know, some mid-range decks like Niv-Mizzet or Mono Green Devotion, some aggro decks like Wynota and Mono Red. Um, you know, Arc Light, put Arc Light Phoenix in the mid-range category too. And then, you know, Lotus Field as one combo deck. You really don't see Ascendancy these days. That deck has fallen off. So, you know, that's not a lot for you to have to beat. Um, and, uh, you know, Wandering Emperor gives you something a little bit more proactive to do. Um, and you also have March as this new flexible removal spell. So I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Azorius Control right now in Pioneer. And that's a, a deck I would, would also recommend. Yeah, I think if I had to choose for a deck this weekend, it would be Azorius Control, the the mono red deck, or Wynota. And I'm not sure which one I would do because they're all like, they're all a little different. Like the mono red deck is like very aggressive, right? It's not your typical like throw everything at you deck and hope it sticks but like it can play longer games you know with chandra and these lands having utility and stuff which i think makes it great right but then like you have the Wynota deck which it can it can beat azurius control right like the fact that it has all these like value creatures you know it has uh voice of resurgence and all these things and you know it just has this robust in game that happens as early as turn three you know where you just put a hunt master into play attacking on turn three like there's not a deck in the format that can really handle that right other than going to like two from Azorius Control, wrathing you and hoping you never do anything again for the rest of the game, you know, kind of thing. And then there's like Azorius Control that I think has the tools to beat both of those decks, you know, but it's going to be asking a lot, you know, you know, is your good draw versus the good draws of the other deck enough to keep up? And you're going to see some cool cyborg cards like Sunset Revelry, I think is a card that like you absolutely need to be playing a bunch of copies of uh, going into the tournament this weekend. Uh, something that's really good against a modern red deck buys you a ton of time in life because here's the thing the the, the blue white decks they have some interaction but most of the ways to win are four and five mana right you know it's the big flashy you know emperor or like teferi right and you need to make sure that you can survive till then sunset revelry gaining you a bunch of life and putting a couple blockers into play especially out of the sideboard and they've probably removed a few of the like possibly a few of the creature removal spells i mean i don't know exactly how they sideboard they probably just keep all of them anyway because they go face but yeah super important card for this weekend if you had to play pioneer this weekend ross what would you be playing um let me think about that while i make this one point sure i i like that you brought up sunset revelry because it is also a card that plays oddly well with march you know, I can imagine having a turn where you exile a card to march to both save mana and get your hand size down, deal with like their roiling vortex, and then cast a revelry and recoup that card that you otherwise would not have because March let you, you know, ditch a card from your hand. So you effectively get that. Um, Think about that. That's really good. Yeah, you get you get that, uh, you know, mana savings, the discount for free because you're recouping a card back with revelry and that's a mode that you usually don't get oftentimes it's just a mini you know it's two-thirds of timely for two-thirds of the mana yeah right and uh i know this is a small sample size but they had a local pioneer event at my lgs over the weekend two people played azorius control and they met in the finals i mean <laughs> hey that's good enough for me right <laughs> yeah i'm not normally a big control person but I, I would strongly consider azorius control for this weekend it get- it gets you in that spot, right? Like, if anybody ever played against fairies when it was really good, when fairies would make their fourth land drop and then just, like, say go or whatever, and you had to play against Cryptic Command and um, I literally just blanked on the Miss card. Mistbind Click. Mistbind Click. And, like, you didn't know what to do, like, what was correct. It can be even worse now because they're representing a counterspell, a draw spell, Emperor, 
like their uh, removal spell. Like one of the guys is even, there's a card that I haven't been seeing in all the lists, but one of my friends is playing a copy of Settle the Wreckage. You know, so he had, he had Settle the Wreckage. He had the card draw spell, what's it called? Um, Deluge. He has Emperor. So at four mana, he's literally got the entire, like he's got everything, <laughs> right? In the blue-white decks, have never had that. They've never, you know, it's always been something like, uh, you know, Gear Hulk, right? Or a big expensive, you know, thing that they have to do in their main phase. Or if it is a instant speed threat, it's something like Gear Hulk at six mana or Hole Breacher that's like, or Hole Breaker, it's Hole Breaker, right? Yeah, Hole Breaker, that's like seven or eight mana, right? So like now you have the four mana one that can, it can do something in the turn, that turn, and then untap and do something again. And I, I find it hard to believe that you're going to be able to survive if they like put an Emperor into play, do something positive, right? Untap, like, play to fairy, untap two lands, and still have a spell that's relevant. Like, still have a removal spell. Because that's the other thing, too, is, like, now they have Doomblade as well in some of these builds. Or they have March up with two mana, you know, pitch a white card, play these. It can put you in some spots that are very difficult to come out of. And if you don't play really, really tight, you're not going to be able to. Um. Yeah, I, I agree, and that that is you know one of the real benefits of, of the Wandering Emperor. It's so much more than it looks on the surface because it's so much harder to play against than any other Planeswalker. You know, having Flash with that ability to activate you know that first turn, even when you play it on their turn, uh, you know, means that you're getting two activations out of it most of the time. You know, even even when you're behind, and that is not something we have seen out of Planeswalkers before. Usually when you're behind on the battlefield, you know you're only getting the one activation, and that's usually not good enough. You know, sometimes you, you get to soak up a little damage with it too, but being able to, you know, get two activations and untap with it, you know, end of turn, Wandering Emperor, uh, you know, exile like a, a Voice of Resurgence, and then untap Supreme Verdict the rest of your board away, and, uh, you know, now I've got this Planeswalker on the battlefield and, and I'm ready to go. Um, is really uh, it's it's a different element and it's still a reasonable defensive card. You know, it's not the best, um, but it's, but but yeah, but it's like, so like flexible. Said, it's not per- it's not perfect, but the fact that it's so flexible, it's like already a top ten, if not like top seven planeswalker of all time, in my opinion. It's it's that good. I think at what it does, like in its niche, and then I had to reread it because like obviously this makes sense, but in my brain it didn't work. It's like it doesn't have to exile an attacking creature. It's exiling a tapped creature because otherwise it wouldn't work in like the main phase after the turn it gets played. You know, like the card wouldn't work well. But like that's actually good because like sometimes you want to kill their attacking creature, but you don't have to kill it when it's attacking. You can just take the couple extra damage to you know keep holding up absorb, keep holding up memory deluge, and like if they don't do anything, you're like okay, I'm just gonna deluge instead. Or, whatever. or if they do something, you're like, I'm going to counterspell it. Or if you really want to kill it and they don't play that threat because they're like, oh, he's got counterspell man up. I won't do anything. And you're like, okay, well, now I'll emperor you in your instep. <laughs> like, like, that's a nightmare, Ross. Like, I, whenever I have to sit across from that, I always, like, overthink everything. And, like, half the time I'm like, it's probably just correct just to do all the things. Just don't play around it. Do all the things. Make them have it. You know, which is what the red decks have been doing against blue-white decks for, you know, the, the, ta- the test of time, it feels like in in magic and honestly i think this format's in a pretty cool place even though like you said it's got constricted a little bit but it's got a really good representation right like you've got a really good uh, aggro deck in burn which there i say i said mono red and you were talking about they play boros charm because it's so efficient and it's kind of a free splash and you get like a sideboard card out of it most of the time which is cool you've got mono red with creatures and burn you know kind of like the prowess deck which is good yeah you've got this 
aggro uh, mid-range deck with Wynota, you know, and it's going to be able to, like, just finish a game off extremely fast. And, like, you can win games as early as turn three, or you can play long games, like you said, because it's got so much more interaction now with these creatures that actually do stuff like Brutal Cathar and Skyclave Apparition. And it's got, you know, main deck life gain and Prosperous Innkeeper, so it can keep up with the red decks, even though that's not a great matchup. Then you've got, like, an actual factual control deck that's very good and very proactive, which I think is healthy for a format when you have these good aggressive decks. And then you've got these kind of, like, fringe combo decks that are actually really good and don't get played a ton. And then, hey, if you want to go over the top of a lot of these decks, you've got the deck that actually won one of the challenges this week. And that's the one you were talking about in, in Niv-Mizzet, right? And then... Still, on top of all that, you've got Arclight Phoenix, just the, the deck that's been here since, like, day one. Yeah. And, and, and Lotus and Field is really a combo good. deck. Yeah. You know, there's tier two options for in a lot of these, um, you know, categories as well. There's the Rakdos Midridge deck that's still around. You see the list floating around in top 32s. Mono Black Aggro still, uh, you know, still has a pulse. Um uh, n- Not as many other combo decks since we don't see, haven't seen Ascendancy around. Um, there is a Demir control deck in Pioneer. I think since March, that one has declined a bit as well. Um, but, you know, th- there there is definitely some decks around. I think there's a pretty clear hierarchy. Um, you know, there. if I were, you know, if I were in the Pioneer seat and, it, you know, I'll, I'll certainly be helping Todd with, with deck choices or whatever over this week and, and how his list is tuned, you know, Arclight Phoenix would be, Public enemy number one. Um, then I would have uh, Niv, um, you know, Red Agrodex Wynota in that sort of tier two, Azorius Control and Lotus Field. I, I think those five really are, are up there as well, but it'd be Arclight Phoenix number one, that group of five following. So it's those six decks that I'm really looking at in, as the, the primary ones that are shaping my deck choice and you know, deck building decisions. Um, and that, you know, just among those six decks, you see control, you see combo, you see different styles of aggro and you see some mid range, uh, you know, a couple different mid range decks. So, you know, I, I would quite classify Wynota as, as an aggro deck, um, you know, even though it has some sort of, you know, has some combo elements and it has, it's a little bit more resilient than it used to be. So it's really two aggro decks, two mid range decks, a control deck and a combo deck. You know, if those are the top six decks in your format, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I think this format's great. I'm super looking forward to it. I kind of wish I'd played it at my LGS over the weekend. I don't really like own uh, a deck too much because here's the thing. I own Phoenix, right? And I've played it so much that I'm like, I just rather play one of like the cooler new decks, but I just don't own it yet. So like might be getting one of these in paper sometime soon so I can try it out myself. Pioneer is like alive and kicking locally where I'm at. We have a Pioneer League that goes on. You know, we regularly get like, you know, 16, 20, 30 people together playing, which is like a, a pretty decent thing at a local event since like we can't even fire FNM at my LGS. We're mostly just uh, commander. So it's nice to see that kind of thing happening. So I'm excited to see where both these formats are going. Modern looking wide open. Maybe it'll, you know, it'll regress towards the middle a little bit here at some point and kind of be like, you know, hey, you thought you had 16 decks or 12 decks to choose from. It's actually about six or seven if you really want to win, unless it's a specific weekend for you. Because there's always that, right? There's always the weekend that, like, Dredge is the right choice, right? Or Living In is the right choice. Pioneer, definitely a, definitely a little, a little, you know, a little closer, right? Only a few decks. But they each present their own challenges, right? Like, with Modern, you're like, I'm just going to have to punt some of these matchups. I'm just going to try to be as good as I possibly can and play my deck well. 
Pioneer, you have the plan. Like, you have a map, right? Read the map, figure out what you think is good enough against all the other ones, have a plan versus those decks, and if you play something else wild, whatever, you're probably going to enjoy a free win if you're playing against a random deck, but... You know, because like we didn't see we didn't see black really get represented this weekend, and that's something that's been a staple in Pioneer for a long time. You know, the vampire decks or you know mono black. Yeah, vampires has really fallen off. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe it's actually good still, but we don't know. You know, like it was a bad weekend for Lotsies. I'll tell you that a card that you know was on our our original list is a pillar of the format. You know, back to the original episodes of this show and stuff. So. I'm super excited to see what's going to happen this weekend. It really sucks that there's no actual coverage, and this is not me digging into anyone. This is not me, you know, putting a plug for the coverage I'm going to be a part of this weekend. I actively was looking forward to getting up Monday morning, doing my normal routine, and then I was going to turn coverage on and watch this event and be like, I wanted to see what happens. And I would pay for that. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would. Um, my, my thing with Pioneer is, you know, we've got those six decks that I listed how, which one of them, if you were to play a metagame that's dominated by those six decks, which one is the best against the other five? Because we haven't had those, you know, those six have all been pretty popular over the last few months at least, but we've had a lot of sacrifice decks recently that are dipping down because of Luris. We saw a bunch of decks enabled by Kamigawa cards. None of them have really uh, stood up to those opening weeks where they looked really strong. Uh, you know, the the Azorius and Soldak with Mishiko's Reign of Truth or the Grease Fang Parhelion Reanimator decks. Um, you know, neither of those really around uh, much at this point. So, you know, what exactly are, um, you know, wh- what are the decks that rise to the top among that narrow metagame? And then does that mean one or two of them drop off? Does it change the balance of power enough for, you know, a certain tier two deck to rise? That's the kind of stuff that I'm going to expect to see happening over the coming weeks in Pioneer. And, you know, the, the results of this weekend are going to go a long way towards, you know, figuring out exactly uh, which direction it's moving in. But it's going to be a direction of, of that sort. I think I know what I'd play this weekend. I think I just figured it out in my mind if I was playing Pioneer. What? I think I would play blue-white, but with a sideboard and the fact that, like, I think I would be, like, a little more... Like, the sideboards I look at are a bunch of, like, one and two ofs, and then, you know, maybe a three of, and usually a bunch of mystical disputes, and then a bunch of, like, two and ones, right? Which makes sense, right? You're like, hey, I want the third Supreme Verdict, right? I would just have a bunch of portable holes in my 75, maybe a Sunset Revelry or two, just, like, make sure that matchup is, like, I want this to be a nightmare for you. And then Portable Hole is good against um, Wynota yep. as well, you know, kind of thing. And then I would have, like, a couple of hammers for the mirror. Like, I'd have, like, Mystical Dispute and, like, Hullbreaker, you know, or something like that. Like, some card that's just, like, good luck, you know, like, at beating this card kind of thing. And, you know, I would do something along those lines and then just have a few more cards that are flexible. Like, I'm looking at the the sideboard of the deck that's in the, that's in the top four or it was in one of the top eights and i actually love this build because i would want a bunch of march of otherworldly light as well in my deck i want my answers to be that was always the problem with the blue white decks in the past is like your answers were too narrow to where if like you didn't draw the right ones at the right time you just get run over sometimes and now the answers are getting way more ubiquitous right like you know if you've got march of otherworldly light like answering everything you've got faithful absence doing an amazing job of just being like kill a creature kill a planeswalker i don't care if you're gonna get a card down the line i don't i need to kill that now right because it's gonna take time for them to get some of the value off of the 
the clue that you give him for this. So for me, I think this is the deck that I would pick this weekend, but I can't fault you for playing one of the like red creature decks either. Cause to me, those, those are the decks to pick from this weekend. I, I think any of the six I listed are, are good choices. Oh, for sure. Whether, uh, you know, Monored, Wynoda, uh, Niv-Mizzet, Phoenix, Lotus Field, Azorius Control. I would certainly be picking from among those six decks. Um, I think, uh, you know, I honestly kind of think Lotus Field is just the best deck, but people are reluctant be. to play combo decks. Yeah. It looks, real, well, here's, looks really here, good. Here's the thing. In a format that has pretty much pushed out Thoughtseize or looks like Thoughtseize isn't really a, like a thing, you're goldfishing versus some of these decks. Now, the best draws out of the mono red deck might be fast enough to just kill you, especially on the draw when there's like, you know, uh, prowess creature into prowess creature into like prowess creature and then like cast two burn spells. Like you're probably taking 20, you know, on those and it's going to kill you really fast. But like if they don't have their best draws possible, it's not like they're interacting with you a ton. You know, I, I will say, you know, you, you do take some splash damage from Eidolon too, right? You like, you know, your hidden strings start costing yeah, you. But this isn't winning with, with those like breach thoughts, thought, not thought scour, uh, mm -hmm. tome scour loops. You know, yeah. these these decks are winning with like or emergent ultimatum omniscience yeah. and giant spells. So you can actually uh, win through Eidolon sun, a yeah. lot more. Yeah, an approach. You can win through Eidolon a lot more easily than previous iterations of Lotus Field decks. So that that's a big deal against Monored because Eidolon is usually their anti-combo card that's in their main deck. You know, maybe they got something in the sideboard. If you remember the heyday of team tournaments in SCG... I'm going to compare this to something that happened then, and you're going to kind of get where I'm going. And th those is, teams had is a it big lands advantage. and legacy. Yeah, this is literally lands and legacy. When you had a good lands player, you were so far ahead of the field because lands was like people just weren't ready for it. It was very, very good at one point in time, and people weren't testing against it. I mean, you saw my win percentage go down a lot when lands started getting really popular, and then I figured the matchup out and we started figuring it out. But like, and I started changing my deck up. But I think this is a good guess, by the way. I think this is a very interesting, like very close to that where you have that specialty player on your team and uh, i'll tell you this i think if you have a player on your team go undefeated this weekend yeah i wouldn't be surprised if someone's like yeah i went 14-0 or whatever you know because we only need to play 14 rounds or whatever i went 14-0 with mono red or whatever but like it's likely not going to happen right but if someone tells me i went 14-0 in this format and they're like yeah i was playing breach or whatever or i was playing uh lotus field or whatever i'll be like yeah that tracks because like that's the kind of deck, like, it's a little higher variance, maybe, but I think you might be in a absurdly good spot right now. Yeah, um, you know, it's just, it's not never popular enough to get a ton of hate, but it's really good. So the people that play it get to play in a field that isn't incentivized to go nuts hating it out, but, uh, you know, you have so, so much, uh, you just have so much game against everything. It's also one of the reasons, another reason I like Azorius Control, I think just structurally that matchup is pretty good. Uh, you know, a bunch of counter spells against the combo deck, you get to... Yeah, they're not really playing any of like the force through cards or as much as they were. Yeah, yeah. like they can they can wish for a, uh, a, a thought distortion. That's usually their plan against Control, but then you have uh, Narset's Reversal in your sideboard if you want it, which is a blowout against thought distortion in case you haven't ever seen that happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely so so ross and i have covered uh the formats now there is a third format right and i don't think there's really much to say there it's i see the harlan format player, he's gonna figure something yeah. out and i trust him to win games of magic yeah. it's really funny so they they banned ragavan and nothing changed really i'm sure there's some people that are like hardcore and they're like no 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 this changed but let's be real from an outsized perspective looking in not a lot really changed 
Um, the, the broad and texture of the format is the same. Right. That, that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, you know, we're, we're painting with very broad strokes here. I'm not, I'm not, you know, getting into the minutia here. Um, there's not much else to say about this format. Like, get your legacy player who's very good at, get you a legacy player who's very good at legacy, preferably an expert with their deck, and let them do their thing. Yep. Doesn't matter yeah, what, you know, well, it, it matters to some extent what deck they're an expert with. You know, mm-hmm. if your legacy player is an expert at Merfolk, maybe find a different one. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, there's there's always there's always a line, right? Sorry, Merfolk players at home. I'm not sorry. Yeah. I, I feel like we always, like, kind of hate on Merfolk guy I, and Jund guy. I do guy that very purposefully. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> Merfolk person and Jund person. That is not an accident. Uh, you know the joke that I always say, uh, if a player's playing Jund in an SCG event, what are the odds that... They're playing Boomer Jund. What are the odds that the deck's completely foil? Like Joke's eight, on like, you. It's just 100%. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say 80. Yeah, it's, it's at least 80%, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the deck... They might not have gotten the newest card, right? If a, if a brand new card yeah. got printed, they're like, "Yeah, I just I couldn't it, find foils of it yet." You you got any? I'll pay double. You know, it, it, it also only goes up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, so that's about it for this weekend's uh for event that's coming up in Indianapolis. Uh, if you need any food recommendations, get to Ross either in our Discord or on social media. He'll be happy to give you some of his recommendations there. Don't ask me. I'm just kind of following everybody this weekend, and I'm going to be eating very light this weekend because I have a job to do where I'm talking 15 hours a day, and it's going to be brutal. But anyway, we uh, hope to see you all there. Ross and I will both be there. Uh, if you're a fan of the show or whatever, make sure you come up and say to us, uh, say that to us. We'll have a little, little something to give to you. And I'm working on possibly doing a giveaway over the weekend as well, like we used to do back in the day. So I'm, I'm hoping to have a couple little things that I can give away as well. So make sure you're following each of us on Twitter for that. Ross, where's, where's your Twitter? I am at Ross Hunnids. And then mine is the Tannen Grace. So make sure you follow us on Twitter there. Um, you know, we'll be we'll be putting some stuff up on there, like how we're doing this weekend. Food recommendations will respond on there quite well. But uh, look forward to next week's episode where we see how wrong we were on this week's episode or how right right we were on what's going on. And maybe a little less baseball talk, but we'll have to see. It is baseball. Yeah, season, un- so. unclear. <laughs> unclear on that. Sorry for the long tirade on baseball in the beginning, but literally one of the biggest yeah. you know things that's ever happened to my team. In my Once again, happened, I am so. not sorry. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you check us out on all of our social medias and our discords. But until next week, good luck and we'll see you all in Indy. Bye.